Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, we're remembering a forgotten rescuer. Max Ernst, Marc Chagall, Hannah Arendt, Marcel Duchamp. These are names we know. They're some of the brightest stars of 20th century European artistic and intellectual life. But who can name the man who was perhaps most instrumental in saving their lives after they were identified by the Nazis as degenerate artists? The man is Varian Fry, an American. In 1940, when he was 32 years old, Fry volunteered to go to France on behalf of the Emergency Rescue Committee to try to smuggle out as many endangered writers and artists as possible. By the time Fry was expelled, about a year later, he and his team of helpers had rescued more than 2,200 people. Today, we're speaking with Dara Horn, the novelist and essayist, about Varian Fry's achievements and about why he seems to be now so little known. Dara's written a big piece about Fry for Tablet, and we're very excited to have her here with us in the studio to share some of what she learned. Dara Horn, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Varian Fry's rescue work. Under what circumstances was he sent to France, to Marseille, in 1940? Well, Varian Fry had had a career as a journalist, and he had been in Berlin in 1935, where he had witnessed one of the first uh, real pogroms that were organized by the Nazis. It happened to take place right outside of his hotel, and he ended up reporting it for the New York Times. And so it, from that point on, it, this became a cause that he was very passionate about, although he wasn't Jewish, wasn't German, had no particular uh, personal interest in it, but it was based on something that he had seen himself. And this experience obviously was part of his motivation um, when this opportunity came up. So the bigger question though, was how the opportunity came up. Um, everyone knew what was happening in Europe, but there was very little will in the United States to do much about it. Um, that began to change very, very slightly in 1940 when the Germans took over the northern half of France. And Paris by then had become this sort of hub of uh, refugee intellectual activity where many people who had been in, in danger from the Nazis had fled to Paris, um, whether it was because they were Jewish, because they were anti-Nazi activists, because they were artists, uh, because they were intellectuals who were uh, considered undesirable by the Nazis. These people had fled to Paris where they had this sort of expatriate community. And once the Nazis took over Paris, this became an enormous problem. Um, the way Varian Fry describes it is they turned the south of France into the greatest man trap in history. Because what happened was the Nazis officially were controlling northern France. The southern half of France was considered officially unoccupied. But of course, what happened was that they, the Nazis had simply created a puppet government uh, based in Vichy. And part of the agreement of the armistice that the Germans had with the French was that they required the French puppet government in the south to, quote, surrender on demand anyone who the uh, Gestapo wanted. And this, of course, included all of these uh, important intellectuals who had been living in Paris and who now had fled to the south of France. So once American intellectuals started to realize this, there developed a very small but significant movement among Americans who decided that they wanted to create uh, a way for these people to find asylum in the United States. So the Emergency Rescue Committee was created with um, with a number of people leading the way. Um, some of these people were ger themselves German refugees who had come to the United States earlier. Some were uh, Jews of German origin, like um, Ingrid Warburg, who was the niece of Felix Warburg, um, who's 
ended up taking the reins in terms of fundraising. Um, other people were uh, people like Thomas Mann, who was a German, of course, a German novelist who had already come to the United States and whose brother was one of these intellectuals who was in danger in, in, in France. And what happened was they started collecting money for these people to support them in France and then also to um, arrange for lists of people that they wanted the United States to give visas to. Scholars, artists, writers, musicians, scientists. Um, the problem was that money wasn't enough. They needed to find some way to actually get these people out of France to give them these visas, mm -hmm. which meant they needed to send someone to France. Um, this committee tried very hard to find someone who was actually qualified for this job. But unfortunately, anyone who actually was qualified was not going to be able to do it because being qualified meant probably that you were a refugee yourself. That's how you knew these people. And therefore, if you went there, you also would be endangered. There were huge categories of people who weren't able to go. Um, basically, no one stepped up to the plate. And at that point, the committee found itself forced to say yes to kind of a nobody, um, Varian Fry. So at that point, he had never done anything like this before. Is that correct? He had never been a sort of rescuer or gone on any kind of secret missions evading uh, the Nazis, for instance. Oh, no. I mean, he had maybe seen it in a movie. Um, no, he had um, he was a Harvard graduate. Um, he had majored in the classics. Um, you know, he was a sort of an, an old time wasp. Uh, he had grown up in New Jersey. This was not someone who was sort of had this cloak and dagger experience. He never even had been in the army. But what's fascinating is that when he goes to France, he really expected, I think, a different kind of experience. He had this idea that he was going to go to uh, Marseille and then sort of, you know, bike ride around Provence bird watching while he handed out visas to these people. <laughs> and I think he really had, you know, I mean, he, I, I know because it's in his memoirs, he said he really had no idea what he was getting into. We find out in your piece that, in fact, though, he was pretty good at this task, even though he had no experience uh, in this world of rescuing. And I wonder if you can uh, describe for us a little bit what were some of the challenges that he was up against in getting writers and artists and intellectuals out of Europe at that time? Well, there was any number of obstacles. Um, the first was the enormous number of refugees who, once they heard there was an American with dollars and visas sitting in Marseille in a hotel room, immediately started uh, flooding him with their with their pleas for rescue. And I think that's one of the more poignant parts of his story, where um, he was staying in a hotel in Marseille and sort of had just just started to make contact with some of the refugees on his list. And it was maybe the third or fourth night that he was in this hotel that he looked out his window and saw an enormous line forming around the block wow. outside the hotel and realized that this line was people waiting to see him. Um, the, the technical problem was that they actually needed two visas to get out of occupied, uh, and I should say unoccupied France, southern France. They needed two visas, one from the uh, country of destination for the United States, and the other they needed was something called a French exit visa, which was permission from the Vichy government to leave France. Now, obviously, the Vichy government was not going to give permission to leave France to the very people who they've promised to surrender on demand to the Germans. And in fact, Applying for one of these French exit visas was probably a more one of the more efficient ways to let the Gestapo know that you were in town. So what immediately became clear was that these people were going to have to get out of France illegally and that there was there was no way to do this above board, that this was going to be an entirely underground operation. So what Varian Fry started to do was finding ways for these people to get out of France. And he investigated all kinds of ways. They tried to um, charter boats that were going to go to Gibraltar, that they, those boats ended up being intercepted. Um, and then finally, the most successful way that they managed to do this was by basically walking people over the Pyrenees into Spain. Um, 
The problem with this, though, is that the laws kept changing, and sometimes Spain would let them in, sometimes Spain wouldn't. Um, there had to be very careful in evading the border guards, the French border guards, and as they, and of course, obviously, there's the major difficulty of walking over a mountain range. One of my favorite favorite stories about this, which Varian Frey tells in detail in his memoir, was the story of uh, Franz Werfel, who was an internationally acclaimed uh, German novelist, and his wife Alma who herself was uh, internationally acclaimed for other reasons. Alma was... Uh, she had been Mahler's wife. Oh, she had been married to Gustav Mahler. She had been married to everyone, though. I mean, she had um, she had spent a... There was a, a non-Jewish woman who had spent a, a lifetime screwing over a brilliant Jewish man. <laughs> um, but her third husband uh, was this German-Jewish novelist, Franz Werfel. And they had they were camped out in a hotel in Marseille when... Varian Fry first met them. And they sort of casually told him about this visa problem. And they say, well, Varian Fry, Mr. Fry, you must save us. And it was sort of like, well, he's their hired help. And that's basically <laughs> the role that he played for them. He was, when they when he arranged for their rescue, he arranged for escorts, uh, other American expatriates who were working with him. I should mention, too, that um, Varian Fry eventually hired a staff um, of many American expatriates who were themselves very interesting and colorful and, and were able to help him in this mission. Um, but one of his American expatriate friends was able to basically escort these people over the Pyrenees while he then traveled by train through the mountains with um, Alma Verfel's 17 pieces of luggage. Um, he was burning their documents on the train in the train's bathroom. Um, finally had to meet them on the other side, but there, those people were really very unprepared for this. Um, but you had this entire cloak and dagger experience going on in Marseille where basically the Vichy police very soon understood what was going on and were trying to catch him in any way that they could. They had him followed by plainclothes police officers. They were tapping his phone. Um, his staff had to have their meetings in a bathroom with the water runnings because they knew that their office was being bugged, um, all these kinds of things. And, but, but really was, to me, the most significant obstacle to Varian Fry's success was actually the United States government. How so? The State Department was very much against this mission. At first, they were in favor of it. They were, they were issuing these visas. But very soon, they realized that this was compromising their ability to cooperate with France they were interested in maintaining France as their ally. And if they were going to maintain France as their ally, they couldn't be doing things that were against the French government. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the French government was in alliance with the Nazis. So this was a, this was a, a major bind that the United States uh, government found itself in. But what, you fa- what, what ends up happening is the United States, the State Department ends up blocking a lot of these people from being accepted to the United States. Um, it was very stingy with, with giving people visas. Um, there was uh, a, a, several points where Varian Fry was arrested. They did not offer to help him. But the, the, the bigger problem is that ultimately the State Department then began cooperating with the Vichy police to capture him. And what happened was his passport expired while he was in France. And they refused to issue him a new United States passport unless he agreed to go home. And ultimately, it was the State Department that arranged for him to be arrested and expelled from France. And that's when he went back to the United States. Yes, and he had no choice. Um, that's to me what the the most depressing thing about this is, is that you hear this story and I think we have this affinity as for these stories of rescuers during the Holocaust and these people are so wonderful. But as Pierre Sauvage is a filmmaker who is working on – has working for many years on a documentary on Varian Fry and he's collected tremendous amounts of information about his mission and, and interviewed all the members of this, this team that worked with him. And one of the things that he says is that um, we pay tribute to the righteous in order to ignore them. What do you mean? What does that mean? 
what Sauvage says about Varian Fry is that the problem with Varian Fry is that we, you know, we look at the story and we think, oh, how wonderful and uplifting. This is an American who sort of, you know, showed that Americans did care. Well, actually, what his story shows is that Americans didn't care. And he was unusual, um, that he was the only one who really did something about it. And then, in fact, that the American government itself shut him down. And also the American public shut him down, because what you find is once he comes back to the United States and starts writing about this mission, starts writing about the massacre of the Jews, he had a, a cover story in the New Republic in 1942 about the massacre of the Jews. Um, he was completely ignored. Um, when he published his memoir, he was completely ignored. He really lives the rest of his life in obscurity, even though these people he saved went on to this amazing fame and fortune in the United States. And I think what you see with that is this: these stories about these righteous people who were really going against the green who we now celebrate in retrospect, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be celebrating them as much as we should be realizing what they show us is the inadequacies of what most people were dealing with. And what you see is that most people were not righteous and that there were opportunities to do so and that these, those opportunities were passed up. So Dara, Varian Fry wasn't Jewish, as you point out. He wasn't an artist. He wasn't a novelist. He wasn't a great intellectual. I mean, he did go to Harvard, but that being said, uh, why was he so invested in saving this particular group of people? In Varian Fry's memoir, which he published in 1945, he actually answers this question. And the way he phrases it, it is this. Among the refugees who were caught in France were many writers and artists whose work I had enjoyed. Novelists like Franz Werfel and Leon Feuchtwanger, painters like Marc Chagall and, Mark, and Max Ernst, sculptors like Jacques Lifschitz, he wrote. For some of these men, although I knew them only through their work, I had a deep love and to them all, I owed a heavy debt of gratitude for the pleasure that they had given me. Now that they were in danger, I felt obligated to help them if I could, just as they, without knowing it, had often helped me. What you see here is that he felt a deep love for these people. Um, later in um, one of his telegrams back to his wife, he says, I could no, no more abandon these people than I could abandon my own children. What I think is interesting is that the feeling was not mutual. What you find later is that these people, once they had been rescued, in many, many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, basically wouldn't give him the time of day. One famous example of this is uh, Marc Chagall. A number of years after the war in 1967, um, which actually ended up being the year that Fry died, Fry decided to do a, a fundraiser for the International Rescue Commission, which was a, a philanthropic group that was sort of loosely connected to this mission he had had in Marseille. And the way he wanted to raise money for them was by creating a um, an album of original artwork by these people that he had saved. Now, he thought that this would be easy because, you know, he saved these people's lives. Don't they owe him something? But of course, it turned out not to be at all like that. Um, my the example of Mark Chagall is is very interesting. Chagall actually was someone that Fry not only gave a visa to and escorted through the mountains, but also um, Chagall had been arrested by the Gestapo, and Varian Fry had gone to the Gestapo headquarters and had personally bailed him out of jail. Mm. Um, so this was someone who he had you know very personal connection to in terms of his rescuing of this man. When he asked Chagall to give him a lithograph for this book, Chagall, after much, much pleading, did give him a lithograph, but then didn't sign it. But then is the implication in some ways uh, that Varian Fry was helping them with the hope that they would be friends after, that he'd get something back? I mean, it sort of taints the idea that he is an altruistic hero if he wants some kind of return on the investment. Well, I don't know that. I mean, to say that someone is perfectly altruistic, I don't know if anyone is ever really perfectly altruistic. Um, 
Pierre Sauvage, this man who's uh, working on this documentary about Fry, um, has done a lot of research on righteous, righteous Gentiles. He himself had been um, rescued as an infant um, by righteous Gentiles in the region of Le Chambon in southern France, which was a whole community that sort of banded together to rescue Jews from the Nazis. And he had a theory about um, righteous Gentiles and what motivated them. And his theory was that these were people who were very happy and that they were people who were very secure in their sense of their place in the world. And it was that sense of security and, and, and confident sense of self that gave them that happiness and that also gave them that um, – that sense of being able to see with clarity when something else when, – when the world around them was going wrong and to take the appropriate steps after that. Um, with Varian Fry, I remember I spoke – I called um, Jim Fry, who was Varian Fry's son, to ask him about what he remembered of his father. And when I mentioned this theory that Pierre Sauvage had about you know, having never met an unhappy rescuer and that these people were people who had this secure sense of self, Jim Fry – actually laughed at me and mm-hmm. said, you know, when I think of my father, I don't think of someone who is secure in his self sense of self. And when I asked him why he thinks his father did what he did, the first thing he said was part of it was a desire to, uh, you know, be important and hang out with famous people. Um, you know, he said that he, there were these genuine humanitarian reasons too, but also part of it was this, um, you know, this desire to be recognized for uh, saving famous people. I think that that's a little bit unfair. Um, I think that it wasn't that he wanted to necessarily be famous himself. I think it was that he really had this idea of European civilization as this height of human development and this height of human tradition and that that was what he was trying to do. Um, one of the telegrams he writes back to his wife and there are many telegrams back to his wife because uh, she was always begging him to come home and he was always trying to explain why he felt that he couldn't. Um, one of them says, you know, please – understand what we're trying to do here. We're trying to save, he, as he says it, we are we, tr- we are trying to save culture Europe. Stop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, he really had this sense that he was rescuing Western civilization and he genuinely believed that. I think that the problem, that, that the thing that becomes difficult about the story of Varian Fry is that what it turns out is that Western civilization was not a civilization that valued people like him. Derek, we just have time for one more question. And I just want to get a little bit at this notion of who should be or who shouldn't be rescued because this is something obviously that you grapple with in the piece uh, and the ambivalence toward the emergency rescue committee that they sort of made this wish list of intellectuals. But you in a way posit that there should be a wish list of righteous people. I submit that why should there be any criterion? It's almost like a death panel. How are you going to decide this person should be uh, saved because they, you know, gave to charity, but this person wrote a novel and this person did nothing special. They just fed their kid every day. I mean, what about just saving for the sake of saving that we're all equal no matter the good or evil that we've done? Well, of course, that's completely true. But the project that was undertaken at that time was undertaken not necessarily because it was believed that these people were better than other people or that their lives had more value, but it was that there, there was this, a, there was an idea that that the people that they were saving were the guardians of Western civilization. That these people, you know, because they were artists, because they were intellectuals, um, because they were scientists, that that these were the people who were the lead, you know, that were the leaders and the imaginations that were the most important in some sense, in terms of rescuing. There was, let's say, there was no way to rescue these people, but that there was a way to rescue this culture. I find this interesting because ultimately, Western civilization is not what died in the Holocaust, and. 
there was no attempt to rescue like what actually did die in the Holocaust. One of the things I mentioned in my piece is that uh, when Pierre Sauvage made this comment about um, you know, that no one studies the righteous. Nobody devotes their life to the people devote their life to the study of evil, but no one devotes their life to the study of the righteous. There was a movement in Eastern European Judaism before the war called the Musser movement. Um, and this was uh, a movement within religious Eastern European Judaism, um, which was focused exactly on this. This whole purpose of this movement was the scholarly study of ethics and how to develop ethical behavior. There were whole academies devoted to this. There were you know, libraries full of books that were written on this subject. The Musser movement was destroyed. What happened to the Musser movement was exactly what the people on the emergency rescue committee thought was going to happen to this vaunted Western civilization. All those people were killed. Their books were all burned. There are no copies left. Their, all their academies were shut down. These were people who devoted their lives to the study of righteousness. You mentioned the idea of um, you know feeding your children every day. Um, one of the things that um, Rabbi Salanter, the, one of the uh, founders of the Musar movement, um, one of the things he writes about is that uh, is once going to Kol Nidre services and uh, hearing a child crying in a house and uh, going into this house and finding that the parents had left the child alone so that they could go to the Kol Nidre service. And this is a baby who's just crying and crying and crying. And he went in and stayed with that baby instead of continuing on to the service he was supposed to lead. That's, that's the kind of experience that his school was studying, was how one makes those kinds of choices. It wasn't a study of how governments rise and fall. It wasn't a study of painting or, or music or, um, you know, or, or, or novels or something like that. It was a study of everyday morality. Um, those people were all murdered. No one tried to save them. There was no sense that that was something important. And to me, that's what I see is uh, when I, what I wrote in the piece was that not that what sh that that these people who were writers writers and artists shouldn't have been saved, but that if you were looking for people who you wanted to be the guardians of civilization, you should have looked for more people like Varian Fry. Dara Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Dara Horn is the author, most recently, of the novel All Other Nights. You can read an excerpt from her story on Varian Fry on our website, tabletmag.com. And if you want more, go to amazon.com, where you can purchase the whole thing as a Kindle single. Here's a quick question. How is it going with your New Year's resolutions? We're pretty far into January now, and I have one for you. I think it's not too late to take a new resolution on. Why not go to iTunes and post a review of Vox Tablet? It's a great way to bring in new listeners, and we would, of course, be very grateful. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next week. 